If you've got your Bibles with you, would you like to turn to uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 5? Whoa, where on earth is that? Well, it's in the Old Testament. So if you go right to the front of your Bible and then go right, it's a few books in. It's probably one of the most well-worn passages of Scripture in all of the Bibles I've ever owned, 2 Chronicles 5. And I'm really excited about sharing from it today. Um, after years of doing this, I kind of realized that I don't really talk. I break a, cell, a piece of myself off and give it away, which is why doing this is like, oh, it's amazing. But I feel like I am literally breaking a piece of myself off and giving it away today. So be kind to me, smile at me every now and again just to make me feel like it's okay. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you'd help us today through all of the words that I say to hear what it is that you're saying because that's what really counts because we do not live by bread alone but we live from every word that is continually proceeding from your mouth. Amen. I want to talk fast so that I can get us back to that song that we finished with because that song isn't finished with us. So um, I've asked Louise and the team just to be ready to interrupt me and take us back into that song. Because I think Holy Spirit wants to do something with that song. Songs are sails. You push them up, the wind blows, and they take you somewhere. And that song isn't finished with us yet. So be ready for that. But 2 Chronicles 5, read from my favorite version of the Bible, New American Standard Updated Version. Other versions are available and are valid. This is the story of Solomon and the temple that Solomon built and the temple that David dreamed about being filled with the glory of God. You can also find it in 1 Kings 6. The two stories and narratives complement each other really well. Here we go. 14 verses uninterrupted. Fasten your seatbelts. Thus, all the work that Solomon performed for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and all the utensils, and put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's households of the sons of Israel, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, out of the city of David, which is Zion. All the men of Israel assembled themselves to the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the Ark. They brought up the Ark in the tent of meeting, and all the holy utensils which were in the tent, the Levitical priests, brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the Ark were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the Holy of Holies under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim made a covering over the Ark and its poles. The poles were so long that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside, and they are there to this day. 
There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets which Moses had put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of Egypt. When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jejuthun, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them, 120 priests blowing trumpets. Don't complain about the worship being noisy, people. Um, in unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Today, I just want to take some time out to talk about one aspect of our corporate assignment. As a community, we spend a lot of time talking about our personal individual transformation and that's good and it's healthy and it's right but at the same time as there is an individual journey for all of us to go on to become more and more like him there is in parallel to that a corporate assignment which is unique to us and maturity says it's both our individual transformation and our corporate assignment. And I want to share on one aspect of that corporate assignment today, and that's this. To host his presence and steward the prophetic on behalf of our city, of our nation, and of our world. Wow. Everybody say, wow. Wow. Everybody say, wow, like you mean it. Ah, that's better. Sounds like Alexa now. She says it amazingly. In our Elements course, which is happening right now, what I'm going to talk about today, we describe as encountering God. You'd be pleased to know it's not just a marketing strapline. It's intended to be the way we do church. Because if he doesn't show up, then all we are is a very expensive social club. Moses said, do not send me anywhere you are not going because the only reason we are distinguished from all of the other people on the planet, Lord, is your presence with us. So it's not just a marketing strap line. It's our dream, our passion, our vision, our goal for us and everyone who comes amongst us to encounter him. To encounter him he therefore must be present. You don't encounter someone who's not here. He has to be present. Our maturity requires us to embrace maturity 
but also to embrace mission. I'm going to dive into 2 Chronicles 5 as the seedbed for what I want to say today because it is for me the quintessential passage. That's a big word, isn't it? It means it's a brilliant passage for anchoring anything I might want to say about what it is to host the presence of God corporately. It's an Old Testament passage that Holy Spirit opened up to me 30 years ago. And I have literally spent the last 30 years marinating in that passage. And I'm currently up to somewhere between 15 and 20 keys that would help us as a community host his presence. Now, don't get panicky. Dinner's not going to get burned, people, right? I am not going to take you through 17 because that would be a list. And lists are dreadful things if you're having to listen to them, right? So I've cherry-picked. And I may not even get past the first one, and I'm not joking. Acts 2 tells us that where the blessing of God falls, something is built. Acts 2, Holy Spirit is poured out, and something is built called the church. 2 Chronicles 5 tells us that it's possible to build in such a way that God blesses. So over here, you have blessing for building. Over here, you have building for blessing. And what I want to talk today, today about is how do we build corporately in such a way that God just cannot help himself but show up? Even if he wanted to stay in bed, he would have no choice because he couldn't resist. This is just too good to miss. I am going to presence myself amongst this group of people. You see, there is Christ in us. Sarah mentioned it earlier on. There's Christ in me. There's Christ in you. That's one way he shows up. But Jesus also said, where two or three are gathered, there I am amongst them. What we want to steward is Christ in me, Christ in you. But what people will encounter when they come amongst us is Christ amongst us. And that's when they encounter God. It's beautiful. So it's both and. He's in you and he's in me, but he's amongst us. And when he comes amongst us, look out. When you walk into the room, I'm not going to sing it. When I start singing to you, you will really know I've arrived, right? Because I used to do that a lot. When you walk into the room, everything changes. Whoa, he just came into the room and now something has shifted, right? Let me just say something about the Old Testament. The older I get, the more affinity I have with the Old Testament. <laughs> I think it's a sign of maturity or something like that anyway. You know, in the church today, there's, there's a lot of time. We spend a lot of time in the New Testament. It's culturally normal for us to hang out there. We're kind of more comfortable with it. Not so many people lose their lives for a start. 
Although you could ask Ananias and Sapphira what happened to them. <clears throat> I won't go there. But it's really important, folks, as a family. I know you've heard me say this, read your Bible. <laughs> Please read the Old Testament. Don't just leave it to the kids to learn all of the Old Testament stories. There's a reason why we teach our children stories, because stories are powerful. They reflect culture and they shape culture. And I, with all my heart, would want you to love the Old Testament. Old isn't always bad. Sometimes good. But it's really important that we interpret the Old Testament through the brilliance of the light of the new. Augustine, a famous theologian, put it this way. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Meaning that to correctly interpret old and new, you need each other. It's a bit like you and some of you who are younger than me. You're new, I'm old, we need each other. I don't need you, yeah you do. Trust me, you do. And I need you. And the Old and the New Testament are just the same. They need each other. They were put together for a reason. Danger if we separate them. The beautiful thing about the Old Testament is it's the floor, not the ceiling. So whatever you read in the Old Testament, that's not the benchmark. That's the starting line. And why do I say that? I say that because we just read about a temple being filled with the glory of God to the point that nobody could stand up or speak. What on earth would that look like? I have a dream that one day I will gather with a people who will so worship him that by the time we're finished, we are all flat on our faces because at the end of the day, when all is said and all is done, it's not about you and it's not about me, it's all about him. And I actually have a prophetic word over my life to that effect, that one day I will be in that place. Heather, I don't know if Heather's in the room, Heather Kirshen, but she had a dream many years ago that that would be true for me. And I, I live for the moment when that is true. And 2 Chronicles 5, whenever I get the chance to talk about it, is my way of trying to say, come on, <laughs> hasten the day when we learn how to do that. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 11 says this, however much glory there was in the old, how much more glorious is the new? And I have a conversation with the Lord often that says, if you showed up in the old covenant in that way, with all of that glory, how much more glorious do you want to show up gloriously in the New Testament, on the other side of the cross? He wants to do something outstanding. The temple that we read about was a temple that Solomon built. But it was first a temple that David dreamt about. He was sitting in his lovely cedar-lined palace. And he said to himself, 
it's not right that I should live in a flashy palace while the Lord is living in a tent, camping. I want to build the Lord a permanent home that reflects the glory and the worth that I attribute to him. And the prophet said, David, do, that, do all that's in your heart. Enthusiastic prophets, you love them. Sounds like a great idea. Prophet goes home and then the Lord speaks to him and says, Mm-mm, it's not a great idea. Go back and tell David he's not to build it because he's got blood on his hands. It's going to be built by his son Solomon. Uh-oh, prophet has to go back and say, Dave, I told you yesterday was a great plan. Sorry about this. <laughs> Lord's had a word with me and it's not you that's going to build it, it's Solomon. And the way David responds to that is beautiful. We'll talk about that in a minute. But that temple is what theologians, of which you are all one, would call a type and a shadow. So the Old Testament is filled with visual images that are types and shadows of what is to be the ultimate fulfillment. And this temple of Solomon is basically a shadowy type of the church. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22 says this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Listen to this. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the church is a temple in which God lives by his spirit. And if Solomon's temple was glorious to the point where nobody could do anything, all the rotors were, cut the rotors, people, God is here, we're just going to lie on the floor on our faces because it's all about him. If that was the reality of the old, what would the new look like? And for goodness sake, please don't fall into the trap of thinking, in the old, it's all external and shiny and great. And over here, it's all going on on the inside because, because the cross has spiritualized everything. There's a technical term for that. It's called hogwash. Over here, it's all invisible. No way. Our Greek-informed Western minds love to do that to us, but it's not true. It's not true and it's not right. The temple was built. I've Googled this, so it must be true. I've averaged a whole bunch of Google search results. But basically, the executive summary is it was built by a lot of people. Even the Bible numbers that you can add up get you to about 180,000 people. That's the workforce of some of the largest corporate companies in the world, all working on a building. Talk about DIY SOS and tradesmen falling over each other. I don't quite know how it worked, but that's a lot of people. And if you take the value of everything that was put into the temple in those days and you add inflation to it, guess what you get to? A very large number. My guesstimate, taking into account the conversion of the pound versus the dollar, because the Americans seem to have done more calculations than the English, gets you somewhere between five and six billion pounds. 
So the temple was built by 180,000 people and probably cost five billion. The church is built by one person and it cost him his life. That's the transition between old and new. The primary purpose of the church temple was to worship. Do you know I haven't even got to 2 Chronicles 5? This is probably a series. See you in 2019, everybody. Um, the primary of the t- purpose of the church is, temp- is worship. Temple is worship. It was the place where they literally went to encounter God. And it was kind of dangerous. So if you got into the Holy of Holies, you had a rope around your leg. Because if you got in and you died, they'd just drag you out. <laughs> That's true. I'm not making That's just true, right? Dangerous stuff, this encountering God before the cross. Took a while to wear off. That's what happened to Ananas and Sapphira. But anyway, I'll save that for another day. Um, the primary purpose of the church is to worship. We can focus a lot on mission. We can focus a lot on you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to do the other. And then we can all die trying. But if we don't wake up in the morning and think the primary reason I'm still alive is to praise him, we will kill ourselves. Even Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. Do not try and love me without having first been loved by him, because I will kill you. (laughs) Because I am so difficult to love sometimes. But when you, when you love me because you've first been loved by him, I am not the object of your love in that sense. It's flowing from a very different place. So witness is fine, but it's preceded by worship. Power is fine, but it's preceded by presence. We must first love him and have him love us. I will get to 2 Chronicles 5, I promise. Worship is both a responsibility and a response. Worship as our responsibility is strategy. Worship as a response is intimacy. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, called out of darkness into light, 1 Peter 2.9, that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. When we feel like it and when he's done something worth talking about and if we can be bothered and, and, and. No. That verse is worship as a responsibility. I don't care whether I feel like it or not. I was saved to worship him. Let my people go, Pharaoh, that they might worship me. The primary focus of our redemption is worship as a responsibility, and it's strategic. The beautiful thing is, as I flow out of responsibility towards him in worship, he flows back to me in response as intimacy. It's both and. And I just want to say this to you as I transition into the 2 Chronicles 5. Over the last few weeks and months, as I've been in worship with you in the anchor and here, Time and time again, I felt the Lord speaking to me and saying this. The Lord is giving us, as a worship community, a strategic assignment in the area of worship. Hands up if you're in the worship community. 
It's a trick question. Hands up who's on a prophetic team. It's a trick question. It's a trick question, but it's exposing a truth. Every single one of us is part of a worship community. And every single one of us is a member of a prophetic team. Because that's our corporate assignment. It's what he's asked us to do. I don't really care whether I'm going to make the cut in terms of the auditions. I'm in because he says I'm in. And there's not a member of the worship team who wouldn't agree with me about that. Because they're not elitists, they're servants. They serve us and lead us to a place where they want us all to go. But we have to see ourselves as part of worship community. And the prophetic community, we're all on prophetic team. But I believe God has given us assignment to make a, make a sound. Vine Life, we have been called by heaven to make a sound. And the sound of our praise and worship is going to do this. It's going to shake the foundations of strongholds over this city and over this nation. The sound of our praise and worship is going to make where we gather a thin place. Where heaven supernaturally will touch earth. The sound of our praise and worship calls sons and daughters from across the world home to receive their inheritance. The sound of our praise and worship strengthens our bond as family and assimilates people into it. And the sound of our praise and worship releases joy and freedom into a world that is bound up and very unhappy. That's our strategic assignment. And it's why 2 Chronicles 5 matters so much. Right, 2 Chronicles 5. I did say I wasn't going to get through 17 or 15 points, so let me just see how far I get and then I'll stop. So if you've got the Bible open still, do you know the first thing that strikes me about 2 Chronicles 5 is the very first verse, 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 verse. In the very first verse of 2 Chronicles 5, guess what happens? All the work stops. So I've just downloaded this like heavenly strategic assignment and you're all going, you're killing me. When do I fit that into my busy schedule, right? I need to get busy. No. You need to rest. The very first verse of this chapter says, they stopped trying. They stopped doing. All of the work was done. Has it ever struck you as amazing that Adam and, Adam and Eve get created on day six? Their first working day is day seven. And guess what happens on day seven? Nothing. <laughs> Why? Because the Lord said, I've had a busy six days, I'm going to take a rest. Can you imagine? Hang on a minute. You've just given me this like global assignment to fill the world, subdue it. He's, Adam's raring to go and God says, no, we're having a day off. 
How cool is that? <laughs> that we would find ourselves on day one, in verse one, in Sabbath rest. It's beautiful. Psalm 23, verse one and two. Where's the first place the Lord, your shepherd, is going to take you? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Go find a sunny day and a green field and lie and just think, this is the first place that he takes me. I've got this strategic global assignment on my life. And he's saying, take the day off and lie in a green field and rest. Honestly, can I just speak a word over, over us as a community? Be still and know that he is God. At the end of this chapter, that's where you end up. But it's a great place to start. So receive your assignment and then say, I'm going to have a kip. I'm going to rest. Ezekiel chapter 44 says this, the priests were not allowed to wear anything that made them sweat. I love that verse. It's just brilliant. I think it's talking about wool, which I don't like anyway because it makes me itch. But it's, it's a really curious thought, isn't it? The priests were not allowed to wear anything that made them sweat. The Lord was very picky about how his presence was hosted. It wasn't hosted by a bunch of sweaty people. <laughs> right? You won't forget that point in a hurry, will you? Sponsored by Shaw. Um, rest is hugely important. The other thing about this work was finished is, you know when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, Hebrews tells us that it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross, that in bringing many sons to glory. When he said it is finished, he said, the work is done. I have done all I need to do now to secure the eternal destiny and future of many sons and daughters to glory. So this, this, this work stopping isn't just about resting, it's about identity. You know, the Lord who is your shepherd takes you to not just a green field, where else does he take you? Have you ever looked into still water? What is it you see? You see yourself. Because the first thing he's going to do is say, rest. And then he's going to say, and now I'm going to remind you who you are. So one of the very first keys to hosting his presence corporately is that we would know who we are. If we're to host his presence, we need to look in the still water and see ourselves and have him say to us, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. I love you. To send people without knowing who they are, who don't know who they are, is reckless. He would never do that. As the Father has loved me, is four chapters before as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Because order is important. So we have this amazing strategic assignment to host presence. And the first thing he's going to say is rest 
and know who you are. Now, if you're like me, you're not just like, mm, come on, I just want to get on with it. Come on, there's work to be done. And he's got me pinned to this green field and pinned to this still water. He said, I am not going to take my foot off your neck until I am 100% certain that you are still and you know who you are. So my advice to you all is don't wrestle with him because he's brilliant at it. <laughs> just lie in that green field and look into that still water and know who you are. You see, we don't then fall into the trap of thinking that what we're doing is performing. When we worship, we're not performing. We're not trying to impress God with our songs. And we're certainly not trying to impress each other with our singing. Because we know who we are and we know whose we are. And we can jest and we can just relax. No striving, no fear, no performance. We're about to host his presence and we are gathering as sons and daughters who have rested and who know who we are. It's beautiful. That was point one. Heck. Right. I might just squeeze another one out. The second one is this. David and Solomon do a beautiful job in 2 Chronicles 5 of modeling what it looks like for generations to run together. And this is something that's on us as a strategic assignment, to model this. David and Solomon did a beautiful father and son job on the temple. They were faithful to their assignment. David was prepared to lay down his dream to build a temple in response to the prophetic word and said, okay, I wanted to build this baby, but he said no, and that's fine by me. So what I'm going to do now is I am going to pour all of my wisdom and resources and insight into David, into Solomon, so that Solomon can build the temple that I've dreamed about. That takes a huge amount of humility. I am amazed at David, because I think, part of me thinks David would have gone, uh-uh. I'm going to build this temple. I don't care what you say. It was my idea, my dream, my hope, my vision. But can you see what Solomon does? in chapter? We're only in verse 1. This is ridiculous. In verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 5, can you see what Solomon does? It says this, he takes the things that his father David had dedicated this includes musical instruments that David invented, by the way. He introduces all of these things with grace and humility and honor into the mix. Solomon doesn't go, the old man, past it, irrelevant. Musical instruments, now they, they're like yesterday's news. Solomon honors David. Verse 1. If you're younger than me, which is probably most of you, you could look at me and you could say this about yourself. I don't know it all. Maybe, Mark, you do know something that I don't know. Just because it's newer doesn't mean it's better. 
I might be faster than you, Mark, but actually, it isn't always about who finishes first. Mark, you might look and sound different to me, but actually what I know is that we carry the same values. The older generation can look at the younger generation and say, I don't know it all. Maybe you know a thing or two that I don't know. Just because it's older doesn't mean it's better. You might be faster than me, but it's not a competition. That's what happens on set down, by the way. We get these statistics about how fast we set down, and I don't give a monkey's uncle. Because I'm 52, and it's not about competition. You see, we might look different and sound different, but perhaps we have the same values. The key question for those of you who are younger than me and those of you who are older than me is, what's your assignment? What's your lane? If we're going to host the presence, we're going to have to get past our insecurity, generational insecurity, and celebrate one another's race. And if I've invented a banjo, use it. Because <laughs> it's good. Solomon, Solomon said, these things my dad has made, we're going to bring them into the mix. Well, and this is probably scaring some of you younger worship team people, I thinking, what is he going to do next? I don't know. My point is, we've got to be prepared to honor one another. He does not host himself on top of a bunch of squabbling immaturity. He's very careful about what chairs he sits on. If the church is going to be a chair on which he sits, we have got to work out this generational stuff. And we're doing a beautiful job of that, let me tell you. Because those of you younger than me make me feel okay about being 51, right? You're doing a great job of making me feel okay to be here. Everywhere else in the UK, they go, what's it like being at Vine Life? Because they're all really young, aren't they? I say, well, actually, no, they're not, actually. <laughs> but they don't make me feel old. They make me feel young. So you're doing a beautiful job of that. And hopefully, I'm doing the best I know how to be relevant to you without having to become just like you. To my peers, I would say this, and I'm going, to be, I'm going to be done now. We're going to get back to that song. If our ceiling is going to be the next generation's floor, then I have got to be prepared to lie down. And actually, the next generation has got to tread really carefully. That's called humility and honor. I lie down out of humility and honor. And you walk all over me in humility and honor. Because I'm not a doormat, I'm a Persian rug. <laughs> I'm extremely valuable to him. But if I'm going to lie down, I'm going to do that because I recognize that I want my floor to be your ceiling. The point is that David didn't die to be Solomon's floor. <laughs> you can be my floor when I'm dead. Till I'm alive, I'm the ceiling. Uh -uh. Key to generations running together is to be able to just do that beautiful choreography of humility and honor. Where one generation lies down and the other one says, I'm going to tread really carefully. I'm saying some 
stuff that you think, oh my gosh, what's he talking about? There'll be more time to talk about it another day. But point three, so worship folks, if you, I know we're all in the team, but not all of us get to do this. For good reason, I should say. <clears throat> the third thing, and we get to verse two, <laughs> is that the very next thing they do is they fetch the ark. The ark is his presence. Solomon said, this was all about you, Jesus, the ark. And they bring the ark into the center of their gathering. The ark had in it tablets. The ark didn't just contain presence, it contained word. God spoke out of a cloud to Moses and Samuel. So the law and the prophets came out of a cloud. And actually, even today, I believe God still speaks out of a cloud. Which is why when we worship, all of us prophetically go, ping, 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 ping. Because <laughs> God speaks out of a cloud. And God spoke to us out of a cloud today and said, he wants to release love through us. In us and through us. And that love is wrapped up in the cloud of his presence. So as we put Jesus as the center, he releases the love of the Father to us so that as the Father loves us, so we're able to love others. So we're going to do that now. We're going to go back to that song, which I think is called Fullness. And in that song, there's prayer and prophecy you know, that's the other beautiful thing about 2 Chronicles 5 is it tells us that actually we can have worship meetings, prayer meetings, and prophetic meetings. Actually, his presence has all of those things in it. He shows up. We get to pray, prophesy, and worship. It's Greek to separate them. It's Hebrew to join them all up. So we're going to worship. Allow God to speak to you. And if it's nothing to do with what I said today, that's brilliant. But whatever else we do, let's just remember that word that Chris brought about wanting to release love to us and through us today. As we worship him, he comes and he presents himself amongst us. And the glory of God, this side of the cross, fills the temple, which is the church. Amen. <laughs>